Hello world. Happy New Year. Today is January 1st, 2018 in the year of our Lord. Or not, if you don't believe in that. And uh, in 2018, you probably don't. No, but uh, welcome back to Quarter Life. It's been a minute, but we're back. Uh, today's episode is awesome. Greg and I sat down with a very good friend of mine named Dave Wellsford. I met Dave while working my second summer at Tyler Hill Camp. He was my boss, or one of my bosses, and very quickly became uh, a bit of a mentor to me. When I first met him, Dave, he's got a bit of a, I guess, a kind of a hippie philosopher kind of vibe about him. And the more I talked to him, the more I spoke to him, the more I saw he had this really very interesting way of looking at life, you know, what your purpose in life is. And that's what we talked about in this episode. Additionally, and the real reason that I wanted to get Dave on the show was that he's lived a very, I would say, unique lifestyle. And uh, after a few years of leading a nomadic kind of lifestyle, backpacking in Southeast Asia and the like uh, in his mid-20s, Dave decided that he, uh, was gonna, he was gonna live on a boat. And he eventually refurbished this, this little dilapidated sailboat and uh, proceeded to, to live on it and sail on it and live at you know, at sea, live sailing, uh, you know, he sailed through the Caribbean, and uh, I'm not going to get too much into it because he talks about it, but it, it really became this amazing passion project, an important story, not just for him, but for his family and his community back home, and it grew into a huge, huge thing. He became the subject of a short film. Uh, the documentary is called 28 Feet, Life on a Little Wooden Boat had enormous success on the independent film circuit. Uh, it's featured on the National Geographic website. It's got well over 600,000 views on Vimeo. So absolutely go and check that out. Now, one thing I think is really important to take away from this conversation with Dave is he's a great example of somebody who's avoided conforming to social norms or expectations as far as career goes or his education. But what's equally important to Dave's story is how he talks about the influence of family and community and friendships in his life in a way that's influenced him and allowed him to have the confidence to invest in such a unique and unorthodox lifestyle. Now, I know when people listen to podcasts, a lot of times it's something that they let play in the background while they're doing other things and get distracted. But I really encourage you to listen closely. Dave's a soft-spoken guy, but if you really listen to what he has to say, especially as he goes on, there's some really poignant moments and ideas about what it means to, to be a part of something bigger than yourself and to be a part of community and how that can propel you on adventures and to do amazing things and how fulfilling it can feel when you bring those things back home back to community back to the people you love and bring it all full circle and it's a great talk and i i hope you all like it so uh without further ado dave wellsford just give us some basic background where you're from sure sure, sure. so i grew up in a small town called Mahombe, nova scotia um two wonderful supporting parents who um who i give credit a lot of credit to where I am right now, um, both with creative minds and and positive attitudes. And um, you know, 
growing up, we bought a small cottage that's on the beach and, you know, the tide comes up and down around, around it. We swam, we canoed, we water skied, we sailed, we had dogs, we, you know, uh, I had a sister as well. I should, that's a very important part who was uh, a year older than me. And, um, you know, and we traveled as well. You know, we went on family vacations and to Mexico and um, we did the traditional Disney World stuff as well and went through high school, you know, like anybody else, had struggles and also had parents who helped me get back on my feet. And around grade 11, well, my parents sent me to leadership camp, which meant going with um, a group of, you know, 10 or 12 other boys and went hiking in Cape Breton for five or six days. And, and I ended up taking a lot of photographs with this little camera. And then of course, being the responsible, caring parents that they helped nurture that um, talent into what I am now, which is a professional photographer. So when you initially went to university, what did you go for? You said you dropped, you dropped out and went to college. Right? Yes, I would have went. Uh, so looking back, you have to remember everything. To put it into context for you, I was very a small you know, person, um, not very confident in myself yet. Um, went off to university, didn't want to go. Parents said, yeah, you're going. You're getting out of this place. Um, or you'll never leave, probably. And went... I study, it was just a Bachelor of Arts, something along the lines to get my feet in the water, stop in three weeks, stop going to class, waited till Christmas. My dad picked me up and I just put everything in this car and said, I'm coming home. And uh, yeah, hey, I got a great job at the Irving Station in Mahone Bay as a gas attendant after that for the next two months. Why'd you drop out? What was it? What was so unsavory that you knew so quickly? I would say confidence. I would say that I went into university, a place where I knew nobody, didn't go with my best friend, um, you know, and didn't have the skills yet to manage myself, to look people in the eye, shake their hands, um, build relationships and make those connections. I would guess that that allowed me to get into a place to make excuses to leave. Um, rather than challenge myself to um, to move in that place. And remember, at 17, it's very hard to set your own goals. You know, you're, if you want to get in the science behind it, that you're just, your brain is not developed to look beyond what's happening right now. After you dropped out and you worked at the Irving for a couple of months, what happened next to open your eyes and make you think, oh, I can't just work at the Irving and live in my home bed. Right. Yes. Yeah, so now I'm working at the gas station. All right. And I'm feeling great because my friends pull up every night and, you know, we smoke a joint or whatever else. We listen to music together and not seeing beyond that. My confidence is back because I'm in my safe zone, which right. is in the car with my friends and we're driving around in the winter in the home bay in Nova Scotia. Um, what happened next was um, the Volvo Youth Sailing Championships came to Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. And the planning and organization of that started in March. So what happens again I would put this back on my parents my parents would saw that yes he's happy and this isn't going anywhere um, you know he's not gonna work at the gas station and smoke dope with his friends for the rest of his life so they I would guess and I don't know this because I never had the conversation they teamed up with a local um, friend of our a friend of theirs who was writing grants to get people work in the community to help organize this worldwide event and I would say that my parents would have talked with them and they said, hey, we have a solution. Let's give him a creative job. We know he can take photos. Look what he did in his past. And he can be the one of the photo guys for this, this event that's coming in. They also, through that same, that same grant process, hired other people my age. And then, so now there's a community with a goal, all the same thing, to work for this organization and plan this event. I would say that from there, my comp, when I started that job and, and having purpose and something to do with, with guidance allowed my confidence and you know, self-esteem grow and grow and grow into tackling whatever was next. So, sorry, what was it called again? What's the... The Volvo Youth Sailing Championships. Sailing Championships. So, before that comes to town, right. 
now obviously we're still a decade before the Lizzie Bell endeavor, right? Yeah. Had you already been had you already been exposed to sailing? Had you is that something that your family did or sure, sure. So I think yes, we did it. My parents aren't sailors, we're boating people. Uh, I think at one point I was in grade ten and my parents were looking for something for me to do rather than skateboarding and smoking weed with my friends in town, right? And uh, which is fair. So they signed me up for this like day sailing program, which was offered at the local yacht club. And, um, and of course I resisted. No, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Two weeks in, bought into it and went every day for the next two summers. And so that was my first exposure with friends who I've made who are still my friends now. And um, yeah, we just sailed every day. And you know, it was something to do that was positive in a group. What do they do with the competition? So you have to think of it as like, not quite the scale of the Olympics, except this is how wide it goes. So the entire world comes together and Volvo sponsors it, obviously. And they bring in young sailors from every country and you represent your country. So the United States, Germany, mm -hmm. and you go out and you spend five days in these races. And, and we find out under 16, who's the best sailor in the world. And, and my role is to go out on the boats and et cetera and take photographs, which wasn't my nice huge camera that I have now. It was just this little like snapshots because I'm just learning. And um, yeah, I mean, that's essentially cool. what happens. You know, you said that confidence was a big thing at that age, right? I'm just curious because you, your family was so supportive why you would have felt unconfident or why sure. you would have felt, you know what I mean? 100% to be honest, um, remember I said I was a small human being, like I remember going into grade 10 and someone said to me in the hallway, that's the smallest grade 10 uh, student I've ever seen and they probably didn't say it like that, you know, it probably wasn't that gentle and I would guess that puberty came late for me, I'm not guessing, I'm telling you, puberty came late, probably late grade 11 when I started to grow, I remember I was always the guy in grade 9, I still had my baby teeth, so it's like mm -hmm. things matured later on for me in life and then luckily for me, even though I wasn't confident, I had a friend group who very much supported me and brought me in. And, you know, I was also good at stuff. You know, I was good at skateboarding and, you know, tried hard. We went snowboarding and, um, you know, so that maybe that's what was working for me. Okay, so we go Irving and then you do the Volvo. You get involved in the Volvo Championships. Championships, right? Yeah. Um, so how long is that? Is that the summer? Is that a couple of weeks? It was a job for five months straight. Five months. Um, remember, starting May and then ended, you know, at the end of the summer, probably August. And then from there, went back, enrolled into the Nova Scotia Community College and went for two years in Halifax. And, that, and when you did that, that was a degree for? For cinematography. They call it screen arts. So the passion for that was because of you had a camera in your hand all summer. Sure simultaneously sure. feeding your desire to be enjoying working around the ships and on the ships and sure yeah okay so what after that you go you do the degree 19 starting to get very curious with girls you know so, your big teeth in oh, yeah i got my big teeth in you know learn what a boner looks like and how you, and start trying to use it um <laughs> and and now you know for the first time living no not the first time so i was in university lived away came home ran back with my tail between my legs yeah. essentially now this Volvo U sailing thing ha happens and now I'm in a place where I'm feeling confident. There were girls that summer as well. Um, friendship crew group is growing um, and that also grew, grew into Halifax. So now 45 minutes later, I'm living, I have an apartment on my own. For the first time there's a loan, so here's six grand. You manage it for yourself and that all went to hell as you can imagine. You know, got a girlfriend, started living with her, had two years of school with people once again who are aligning themselves with the same kind of purpose and, and vision. So in the middle of the degree, um, so now this is a two-year program. Huh. The first year of the program um, was great, successful. I have this videography background now and it's starting to get like a little more solid. Then I came to he here to Tyler Hill Camp. Um, so 
did the job. Still very shy, you know, just in the background. People are going out, I'm not part of that scene. I'm still finding myself, yet I have this talent, which is now videography, which is showing other people their talents, essentially, um, you know, uploading videos online. And of course, this is where Andy and I connected for the first time. He, once again, just like my parents, saw a talent and helped started to nurture it. Um, and great, successful summer. Went home, did my second degree, and, um, and then met more people in Halifax scene, brought them here. We all like, so now I have five best friends and in around four and we're driving around and really girls are a serious part of, you know, motivation and why you're here and why I'm here. And, and looking back, I love it. I'm glad I'm not in that, in that place now. <laughs> I like that your cheeks are getting red by the way. Okay. Um, after that, a whole new adventure. What year are we talking? 2002. 2002. 2002. Okay, so. Coming to Tyler Hill pushes you further. Sure, helps you helps helps you invest in the in the. You have Andy who recognizes your talents and you're investing in them here. Yep. Can you just kind of speak to how your experience working at Tyler Hill, working around kids, getting to thrive with videography and sure. that? I was just wondering how, if you could speak a little bit more to how Tyler Hill has developed your or your outlook on on in the, life and the work you do and your philosophies. And sure. Your, I mean. In those moments, I would have never known what goes on behind the scenes in creating a space that allows people to grow, essentially, and and with little nudges along the way. Um, you know, how many times did I fall off the road, you know, in the next seven years at Tyler Hill, or still? <laughs> uh, and there's people there to help, you know, redirect you to the, the bigger picture and the, and the purpose. I'm still, what, 20 or 21 now? I have no idea what the bigger picture is, and I think that in life, we come across these people who can help you see that over time. And that's always changing, by the way. So you're only, you're only 21. Yeah, it sounds like actually quite a lot's occurred just since high school ended. I'm just curious as to, I mean, we already know you have nurturing parents. So it sounds like they're supportive of sure. whatever you're going to try to do. We all know that arts degrees, photography degrees, videography degrees, they're not the traditional route for a career. Sure. They're not like a guaranteed, you know, it's not exactly a set path. I'm wondering what your outlook on your future or your outlook on your career path was at this time. You know, you're 20, 21 years old, sure. you have this degree, you're working at a summer camp. At the time, were you dealing with, what am I gonna do with my life? It doesn't seem like you ever really had too much of a pressure on you for like, oh God, I'm gonna have to go back to school and right. do a business degree or whatever it is. Well, I think you have to remember the only pressure that actually is reality is only the pressure you put on yourself. Um, you know, if somebody says something to you, you decide whether that's, that's, you're going to put the pressure on yourself to do what they said. Um, there was no pressure ever from my parents or within myself that right now is the time that I have to like get a career and start moving towards it. I remember saying to my father at one point, you know, after the, the Tyler Hill stuff and I remember I'm driving down here now and we're looking at maps and it's feeling really good and I'm with like five guys who and we all love each other. Um, I remember saying to him, so, you know, I, I'm thinking about going and traveling for, for a while and he's like, go. And after camp that summer, we drove back from here, drove to my house in Mahomet, Bay, went weightboarding. This is me and, and my friend group, um, sat in hot tubs, drank beer, made out with girls the whole nine yards. And then we were like, well, what are we going to do next? And we jumped in the car and drove to Whistler, British Columbia, five day drive and got a house and apartment and, um, and, and lived together for another six months and then got back in the car and drove back here to camp. <laughs> and so there was, it was very much in the moment decisions without, you know, spontaneous without having to worry about whatever's next. Cause there was like little awesome things that were happening in different places. Okay. 
So we see where you're at around 21. It sounds like sure. those years are Tyler Hill, followed by travel and be with your friends and enjoy that. So when we get to 25 or 26, when you already mentioned that you were like, I want to build a house that floats. Sure. How do we get to there and what, what motivates that? Sure. So there's a lot to it. So, okay, back to camp now, right? I'm 22. We're still with my friends. And, and I guess the decisions are, do you go home and start, do I start a photography business or whatever else? Yes, I have these great talents now. Or what do you do with it? And because of the people that I met here, I just, I started to see that there were people from all around the world coming here. Well, why don't I go out and see what's out there? And, you know, the next five years was essentially... You know, I met a girl at one point. We went to Asia for six months, traveled all through Southeast Asia. While I was doing that, I was practicing my photography. So, you know, I wasn't just backpacking around, drinking beer and hanging out. I was like, you know, I had a purpose that was practicing the skill of photography, which ended up, you know, I it's, you know, took 20 or 40,000 photos or something, brought them back um, and, you know, edited that together, put on a show in my hometown of like, look, look what's out there pretty much. And, and then went back to camp and then went by myself to Central America and did the same thing again. And then came back to Nova Scotia. Now starting to feel, I remember once again, my dad, you know, nudged me along and said, you know what, hey, at some point you probably should go back to university. Um, and I was like, right, how am I going to do that? You know, what, what am I going to study? And we started talking about NASCAD and then I started looking into that my trans my my credits could transfer from the community college to NASCAD, which wouldn't be four years now, it'd be two and a half years, and um, started moving in that direction. And that's the beginning of Lizzie Bell. So now I'm living at home with my parents, 45 minutes away from Halifax, and I have all this experience of the outside world, you know, traveling, coming down to camp, I have leaders and um, uh, I guess mentors in my life. And now I'm headed back into school at 26 and, and, and just thriving because I could see a little bit deeper into what my professors are talking about versus being 17 and coming into the NASCAD degree. You know, I'm 26 and we're really connecting and now they're taking me and guiding me into what the world is beyond myself. So now I'm driving in and out of the city. I'm 26, love my parents, you know, love living with them. There's no issues. There's not, I want to leave. It's, hey, we love each other um, and I got to do something. I mean, so now I'm starting to you know, build, thinking about building this house and talking to engineers and all this stuff. And then my dad brings up that on a wharf in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, there's an old wooden boat that's been sitting there for three years and either we're going to cut it up with a chainsaw or um, why don't you approach the owner, have a beer and say, hey, if you're not going to use it, I got this. By the way, not knowing anything about what I'm getting into. So essentially, I'm starting to like looking for a home. Something that, you know, so I've been traveling around the world. I have my backpack and that's been, um, that's been filling the gap of home. So I have it with me. I'm able to move it and I love that lifestyle. And now it's like, well, you know, I'd like to be able to like cook my own food and have a shower or, you know, at least sit down and have a shit. And, um, you know, in my own bathroom, in my own place and knowing that, listen, I'm still a student. I don't make that much money. Oh yeah, I have a photography business, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm paying bills. And, you know, this whole idea of also as soon as you buy a house, I mean, now you're, you're stuck for the next 25 years you know, back to essentially that you're feeding your money into keeping this place up and running and then taxes, et cetera, et cetera, that come along with that stuff. So, um, on the water, you don't have to pay taxes. So 
my dad mentions to me, hey, you, you should see this, this boat. I remember it was a day in March and it was very sunny. And it's one of those days you walk outside and you could feel the warm sun on your face and watch the, the snow start melting and there's water dripping everywhere. And you're like, there's change in the, in, in the seasons and you're feeling it. And I remember my dad put a ladder up to the, the boat. He, he brought me on board and there was snow all over it, no masts. You know, this thing hasn't been painted in four years. Um, you know, wooden parts are broken off it. There's a lock on it that we have no key for. So we hit that off with a hammer. And I remember pushing the hatch open and sticking my head in and the place was just a mess, except there was one thing that you, you'll never forget if you're a wooden boat owner. It's just the smell of a wooden boat, which is the combination of diesel, oil, um, wood that's moist, etc., uh, etc., et and the list goes on. Um, and that, that will stay with me for the rest of the next seven years. Um, and, um, you know, I remember sitting on it and being like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> and and that's one of those moments that I think I remembered my professor saying that when you paint a painting um, that you can stare at it all day or you can just start slapping paint on and, and getting through the territory. And so I just started shoveling the snow off, starting to get it in inventory, picking up parts of this boat and being like, I don't even know what this is, I better save it because there's no, you know, I had no idea. So there's no mass and no engine. The mass was stolen, the engine was blown. So I was like, so I guess the first thing I need to do is figure out how to get a mast. So I started asking around, going to like the sailing shops and everything like this. And I met a guy named Doug Phillips and he said, dude, I have a mast. And I was like, all right, how much? A thousand bucks. And I was like, all right. So I have a $10,000 line of credit, which was empty at the moment. And I was thinking to myself, if I do this, then I'm, I'm going in. I'm going full tilt. I'm going to get this done uh, or I'm going to back out right now. Um, because, you know, am I about to give this guy $1,000 for a mast of, for this boat that's sitting that's like has cracks in the hull, etc. And I remember thinking, all right, well, give me give me two hours. And I went and sat at the local pub and had a meal and a beer. And I was like, walked right back with the cash, put it in his hand. And I said, let's do it. And and once I did that, I knew I was in. So from there, got friends together. We picked up the mast. Um, I started borrowing tools from my t friend named Tyler, who's a welder. By the way, before this, I didn't have any of my own tools. I had no, you know, yes, I can hammer a nail into the wall. You know, anyone can do that. Um, now I have to like get chisels and start cutting out old rotten pieces of wood and stuff. So I was borrowing all these tools for about a month. And then at one point, my friend Tyler was like, buy your own fucking tools, man. <laughs> you know, like we have, you're going to be doing this. So that's a whole other investment. And by the end of it, by the way, I had more tools than I could ever imagine. Uh, and I learned how to use every one of those tools. So. So I started bringing in my friend group as well, and they're all inspired by it. And people started coming and helping me sand and paint. And these are all the guys that went to Whistler with me and get people I met at Tyler Hill down here. And it kind of, everyone came together to surround this project. And there was no room for doing it half-assed. It was like, are we gonna do this and make this the most beautiful little wooden boat ever or, or not? And we went at it and five months later, we didn't have the mast in, but I'll never forget. We got a truck to come in, picked it up. The thing looked brand new, all nice new paint. Um, an engine that was in it that worked. Um, we put it in the water and, um, and I sat on it and was like, I can't believe that we did this. Five months straight, every free moment I had. Um, it was a beautiful feeling. What were you doing at the time where you, um, to sustain yourself money-wise, photography still at the time? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with my old man behind it, that he helped me get a job at a um, 
with friends as well at a it's called the Blue Nose Coastal Action Foundation and they uh, they do a lot of work with university students and empowering them to get jobs and go out and study eels or you know, there's a project that they do and they they count turns on an island to see kind of these these natural phenomenons um, and study them and uh, so my role came in I came in to document that stuff and make movies and take photos and and through those images we were able to get more funding for the program and of course met an entirely new group of friends through it and girls and etc etc that's stuff you know never ends um so five days a week nine to five doing that and then every other free moment this boat took over my life you know and, and that's what wooden boats do by the way when you so when you're when your dad suggests okay you, you want to build this floating house let's get the boat um actually first did, did you buy it did you buy it off him or was he like look it's not it's going or destroying it so it's yours if you want it right 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 uh it was actually a lady who i who i bought it from and i think the conversation was over beer yeah of course whatever you want go at it um and to to turn that paper work over there has to be a monetary exchange which was a dollar um and so i gave her a loony and she gave me the paperwork and i went and registered it in my name and um you know so that's how that section of it went down okay and so at that moment when you decide okay i'm gonna get this boat was it immediate or was it a while before you were like, oh, I'm not going to just live on this boat in Mount Bay. I'm out of here. Well, no, as soon as it went in the water, I, I lived on it for the rest of the summer. I have invested at this point so much of my time and energy and love into this boat. As soon as it went in the water, I made the deal with myself that every single night I will come back to this boat yeah. and make sure it doesn't end up on the bottom of the ocean. You know, my job now is to protect this, this vessel. And um, yeah. So during that summer, you were living on the boat in Mount Bay. Yeah, it started out in Bridgewater, which is just beside right, my yeah. bay, and then at one point my parents were like, hey, you could sit at, on this boat and fix it for the rest of your life, let's start sailing it, and so they encouraged me to sail around my home bay, which is a day sail, and that was the first, you know, nice. maiden sail, or I'm not sure what you want to call it. <laughs> um, and we, we made it, it was all foggy, and we made it successfully, and then I anchored it in, right in the middle of my home bay and lived on it. Nice. So when, what was the moment that you decided that you wanted to take it further than just the one day sail around the home bay. When did you decide you wanted to? Well, I was fixing it. There is a group of elderly fishermen who who hung out at this wharf every day, which Lizzie Bell was sitting on, and that's where we were doing all the work. And they were helping guiding me when I, you know, I had lots of questions. Remember, I had no idea what I was doing, and they kept saying to me, you know, this is the kind. Of, yeah, it's a small boat. This is the kind of boat that can sail around the world. And I was like, jokingly, like, yeah, right, like, you know, sure, maybe that sounds like a good idea, and you know. <laughs> not really getting that you actually could do that and um and it it took till the next summer actually and i was fully you know by then the boat is like looking really sharp and i'm like i've had some, have some practice and, and my parents and friends and we've all been out on it and then during that summer i think i remember i was really frustrated one day with something else that broke because it's that's the ongoing battle and all the money i was putting in this and i said I said to my old man, I said, I can't, I can't sell this thing in the Caribbean. I can't, how, how are we going to do that? And he looked at me and he was just like, you just do it <laughs> and let's find a way. And I, when I saw that confidence in him, that this is something we could do. And I was like, all right, well, if you're on board, let's go. And, um, you know, once again, another moment where someone else has, has, have seen the opportunities in me or in us that we could go beyond what we're doing right now. So at that point. 
you and your father take off? Is that what happened? Sure. So now um, my father, Kevin Fraser, who directed in, you know, 28 Feet, um, and I jump on board this Lizzie Bell, and now it's uh, October. And we're waiting for this window to sail to Bermuda, which is a six-day sail, way out, you know, middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And we, we have full suits and, like, life vests, and, like, the boat is packed with $500 worth of food. And we have all these, like, <laughs> random jugs of water and fuel and everything. We're ready to go and confident and, and a little bit cocky at that point, I think, is the right word. And we jump on board one morning, and we put up all the sails and start sailing out. And within three hours, we're all bloody sick and puking over the side and you know tears in my eyes honestly and and we're like what are we gonna do and i just said let's go back turn right around so back to my house where my mom was sitting thinking like oh my god they're off they're gonna die out there anchored swam in sat in the hot tub had a beer was like well that all went to hell <laughs> um and once again i was like well you know we can't how are we gonna do this you know we started watching weather etc there was no weather window breaks or anything and now now the goal is well how are we going to do this and we start talking to people and i remember my dad and i sitting in the triangle in halifax um with some close friends who are you know one's a lawyer others are like boat guys and they said well well i i'm part of a shipping company that's down at the docks um let's start talking about how we can ship a boat to the caribbean and um and what that would cost and what that looks like and so over the next month we start planning what that looks like which ended up being putting Lizzie Bell on a container, an open face container, lifting her onto a cargo boat that was going from Halifax to the Dominican Republic and unloading her there and we'd fly down and, and get her back and put her in the water and start sailing. And that's the next chapter. Where did the name Lizzie Bell come from? Lizzie Bell. And so over the next seven years, I'm learning the history of this boat because after we started, I started a blog and you know, I was making little YouTube videos and just putting them up people started becoming aware and the original owner's son i think it was uh, started emailing me and sending photos of lizzie bell when she was first built and the backstory is that um dad of this family gets 16 grand together at the times in the 60s it was 1969 i think they built her names the boat after his mother which is elizabeth bell it, bell in french means beautiful um and so they named it lizzie bell now dad the back history of that is even deeper dad when the son is 16 has a heart attack and dies and now this 16 year old owns a wooden boat and takes all his high school friends out sailing every single day for um you know as, as long as they had the vessel um yeah all right so we're we're flying to the dominican right so now my dad and i are once again you know, cocky versus confident, probably. Like, I remember my dad has Lyme disease now at this point, by the way. And he's like on these serious antibiotics and the boat's off. And we're like, bought these, our plane tickets. My mom, you know, very patiently in the background was watching all this happen and probably watching money go out the window. And, but yeah, my dad and I have a project together and, and she's going to back it. And she did. And so December 7th, I think it was, we flew the Dominican Republic and thinking within three days, we'd have her in the water and ready to go. Well, three days turned into an entire month of trying to get Lizzie Bell back from all of the, um, how, do you, how do you say it? Everything that's involved in a less structured world. I mean, like, you know, we have Canada here and we know how things go and the paperwork is set up. Well, now someone just shipped a 
a boat to the Dominican Republic, well, everyone saw this as an opportunity to get something out of it. So the Coast Guard needed to be paid, the, um, you know, the government wanted their tax money on it, um, et cetera, et cetera, the list goes on and on. And it's also Christmas and in the culture of the Dominican Republic is pretty much, we're not working for the next two weeks leading up to Christmas. So my dad and I, every day, walked up, we called it a walk of disappointment. We'd walk up and sit in this office um, with the with these very nice people, by the way, who um, were supposed to deal with all the logistical side of getting the boat back, and we're paying them to do it, and it just wasn't happening. So, And what we realized was it didn't happen unless we physically went up and sat there and waited an entire day because they would be like, oh, these people are back. <laughs> um, and every day we'd walk down at the end, end of the day not having anything done, and we'd just stop at every little bar on the way back and drink beer and talk about the crazy situation that and now this is over Christmas we still don't have the boat back um, we have friends who are waiting to fly in to come with us and sail the boat to the Virgin Islands which is back in like the United States um, framework of things and uh, finally by the way I think it was the day before New Year's that we've bothered these people enough that they're like let's just get these people out of here <laughs> you know they've been sitting in our office for a month every single day um, and they got on board and you know what was it was a really neat experience and i'm just kind of reflecting back um i remember my father at one point just handed his wallet to this gentleman who was helping us and said well, whoever you need to pay off whoever you need to get this done just get it done and he was walking into the coast guard and giving bottles of rum to get the, just a signature and like i remember this one of the stories was well if you want this done today then you have to buy me lunch and so it's like just get it done. <laughs> we'll buy you lunch. Um, you know, this this gentleman who worked, uh, we took our wallet and he went to the grocery store and bought us all the food and brought it back. And um, and in this shipping container area, it was a beautiful thing, actually. They they picked the boat up and essentially put it right in, in the water right there where I had to put the masts up. And within three hours, you know, I put the masts up. I had everything rigged where my dad was dealing with the logistical side of things. And and I'll never forget, it was on the side of this rocks. Remember, we're like kind of paying off all these different organizations like the Coast Guard and like the government guy and the guy who owns the, the boatyard. And all these guys are sitting, the army's there, sitting down on the side just watching me. I'm telling you, 15 different people with sitting there with guns, <laughs> the whole deal. And and the battle was that we said we're leaving, we're not paying seven grand in taxes, we're in transit, we're, we're in transit. And they were saying, well, if you stay, you're, we're gonna nail you. And um, so they sat there and then I remember I was trying to put the mast in and this is like, you know, this thing weighs, I don't know, 300 pounds or something. And one guy got off, he put his gun down and got off and helped me like lift it up and put it in. Um, it's getting dark now and the crew's on board, which is now my dad, um, the original owner and their 10 year old daughter named Gracie um, is now this crew that flew to Dominican Republic to, to fly out, or to sail out with us. We're motoring out of this bay with all these giant cargo ships. There's two gunships following us beside us just to make sure that we leave. We exit the, um, the harbor, I put up the sails, it's pitch dark, we have a small GPS and um, we sailed for the next 20 hours to the end of the Dominican Republic, anchored and drank beer and slept. <laughs> Little Gracie with a beer in her hand. Little Gracie. <laughs> Gracie didn't drink the beer. So so you go from the Dominican to the Virgin Islands? Is that the is that, that route? The next, so the next run is really when we learned what this is all about. Um, you know, So we look at from the tip of the Dominican Republic to Puerto Rico is 100 miles. And we're thinking, all right, we got 100 miles at five miles an hour, um, whatever that breaks down to in time, except 
we're sailing, so the wind's all coming from our destination, so we can't go straight at it. We actually had to sail 200 miles out, tack once, and come back, which taught us a couple things. Um, that Lizzie Bell can't carry enough fuel to do a run like that, um, that we really didn't know anything about offshore sailing um, and, um, and what it takes to actually do that, and that you really have to pay attention to the weather because that's what it's all about in a small boat. Before we left, and I just want to circle back, so now we're leaving Puerto Rico. We've decided that we're going, whatever it takes. Uh, we th we're thinking 24 hours. And either side of us, beautiful dolphins come up and just swim beside us for the next 10 minutes. And it's like one of those moments that you're like so frustrated, and we've all been there. We're in our work or whatever we're doing. Um, and you're frustrated, and all you can see is the cloud and, and what's so hard about what you're doing. And then you look over, and there's like some beauty, and just kind of like, wow. This isn't, this isn't bad at all. Look what we're doing. Um, and then right after that, a giant whale was right beside us too. So it's kind of like, you know, you look up to the stars and you're like, thank you for that. It's just a little, like, little nudge to remind you what you're doing. Um, we get to Puerto Rico. 48, maybe 50 or 60 hours later, um, my dad realizing that he's been away from my mom for a month and a half now, and we said it would be a week. And uh, in the middle of the night, says, I gotta go. Peace out, and jumped on a plane. Gracie and uh, her mom jumped on a plane as well, and I'm sitting there by myself and thinking like, how the fuck am I gonna do this? And there's no other way besides just going at it. Doing it. Putting paint on the wall, you know? What, is, uh, what does it mean to you to have done that with your dad? Like, to, like, that's such a big undertaking to do at all with anybody. Sure. But to do that with your dad, to go through everything in the Dominican, mm -hmm to have run around paying people off, to have to sail out with gunships next to you in the, in the middle of the night and then go through the, all the frustration and then, you know, not only look over and see dolphins and then see a big whale, but then to look and have your dad with you through this crazy experience. Like, what was that for you? I would guess that he was handing something off that him and his dad did, which um, I did ask him at one point. I was like, you know, how come you're, why are we, why are you like putting so much into this? And me, and um, he said that his dad used to, him, him and his dad used to go to northern Ontario and they'd take a canoe and they would hike with the canoe and go on just these long trips and spend that time together. And I would guess that he got a lot out of that and that he was like, well, I'm going to do this with, with my son. And, you know, there's never a time that I sit down with my dad now and there's nothing to talk about. Because, I mean, we always say, look at the fucking crazy stories that we have been through, you know. And, um, and, and we're both interested in doing it. So, I mean, for me, I'll never forget it. You know, and I think all one of the things that we learn in life is all we have is handing something off to somebody else, and that's that's attention and time and experience. Yeah. Um, so rather than just asking, I guess where you went next over and over again, I sure, think sure. I think we just have a couple questions related to your time sailing as a whole. And the first one I want to ask is what's what's your favorite place that you've been along your travels? Your favorite voyage? Easily Haiti. Yeah. I met a girl at this point, and we were in, we ended up taking on all these crazy adventures together. And we were in um, Aruba, and we crossed a really big, you know, large crossing. We crossed the Caribbean Sea. Um, it took three days straight, uh, and we ended up in a small little island, which is the only safe, or what we were told, the only safe place in Haiti to, to go travel um, in this fashion. And it's called the Ilavash, and it just sits off the mainland of, of Haiti, and we pulled into this 
beautiful flat calm bay and you look out and there's all these fishermen in their dugout canoes with like homemade sails and they're pulling out huge you know like tuna that are this big and dropped an anchor and had no idea what we were about to get into um, an entirely different world um, we anchored there for for uh, two weeks and spent a lot of time on shore getting to know the cult you know getting to know ourselves and getting to know the culture and visiting orphanages and trying to start to understand the history and it was very difficult in the, the fact that you're learning about this foreign place and you see them looking at you as some of the richest people in the world and I'm looking back at them and looking like, yeah, but you fish all day and you take care of your family, you guys are so rich. And then, you know, I started to really look at what perspective um, or feel, you know, I read a lot about perspective, et cetera, et cetera, but you can actually start to see moments um, that are defining that. And by the way, we were hissed at and spit on and and hugged and brought into you know people's homes and the whole deal, and uh, it was just I'll remember that forever. I guess the next logical place would be what's what's the worst worst place or the worst worst experience maybe not yeah. not so much like worst place but where is a place that you went and maybe the experience was more spat at than hugged. <laughs> Once you start to. I mean, you have to. There's, there's something about the Caribbean islands, and they're also very close together. They're each, but for the most part, a day sail away. Um, and because uh, in the past they were colonies of, you know, France, um, some of them are Dutch and some of them are English. And so the, those mother countries are highly influencing the cultures there. So as you like sail from one to the other, they're totally different, even language and food, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on forever and also wealth in money form. Um, and so everything was entirely different and i think once you start seeing the uniqueness of each island how to adapt to that that there never becomes one is the worst place it's like this is the place that you have to look at it through this lens and this is the one you have to look at it through this lens and even though it's, it's all not easy um that that they're all just as you know for me as valuable as as the next okay do you have any um do you have any like anecdotes of a time when you were like Jesus Christ, whether, and whether that be like sailing through a crazy storm or sure. maybe, I don't know, running into trouble on land. Um, there was one part that was really tough. Um, I wouldn't say it was like a worst part or, or anything. It was, it's all, you know, just like we talk about, there's, there's nothing good or bad about anything. It's like all part of growth and it's all, so then it ends up being positive. There was one part when I was really quite inexperienced in the very beginning, sailing from Puerto Rico um, to the Virgin Islands and it was the middle of the night and I was by myself and it was raining and um, the engine was overheating. I was motor sailing a lot because I was going against the wind and I, because of that inexperience, I couldn't figure it out and you know, I, I went down to look at the engine to figure out, well, did all the oil leak out or something and I opened up the, the oil cap and it just shot hot oil all over my arms and I was just like, you know, just like, fuck, <laughs> you know, what else is going to go wrong right now? Um, and so, you know, I quickly patched everything else up. And this engine alarm, I remember, was just going off, like, you know, shooting in the cockpit, and it's just like, beep, and so annoying, and I couldn't figure it out, so I just took a uh, piece of duct tape, and I put it over the speaker that was making the noise, and I'm like, I just have to live with this. Oh. <laughs> and that was the solution, and, you know, 16 hours later, I, I was pulling into the to the bay uh, where I, my destination and I anchored. It was the middle of the night, and um, you know, just slept and looked back when I'm like, "Wow, what an adventure!" You know, it was great. Um, and one thing I do want to touch on, actually, this is kind of unrelated, but Tyler Hill or camp in general is obviously a very 
important thing to you. Sure. So all the while that you're sailing, your a priority of yours is to come back and work at a summer camp every summer. Yeah, always. Every summer, you know, um, I think I missed three out of the last you know, 15 or 14 years. Um, I would guess, obviously, we always talk about it at camps that the relationships were having a huge impact on me, um, which I think allowed me to come to a place that I could call home and I could feel safe and that there was structure and that I knew that people who were my friends and the people that I work for were looking out for what's best for me, even if I didn't see that myself. And also teaching me the, the purposeful work that I was practicing, you know, being a role model or leadership or working with parents or working with kids and working with each other and learning what teamwork is. Do you want to speak at all to, I'm going to have to refresh my memory a little bit. I remember when we talked before about your grandfather's role in your interests and your outlook on life. And, you know, I know you carry, as we were reminded in the moot in your video, that, you know, you carry around your grandfather's knife. Sure. And just in terms of working with kids and the philosophies, I know that one thing for you about camp has always been fostering the real camp experience. We know that our the camps we work at, we're a little high tech, or, you know, it's not you're not living in log cabins anymore. We have AC in there. And do you want to just talk a little bit about why you're so motivated to preserve the experiences that were important to your childhood? Yeah, yeah, I totally can do that. I mean, what my grandfather did, and by the way, I'm not saying that my parents didn't do this. I'm not saying that my friends didn't do this or other key role models in my life. I would say what I remember was from age maybe six to about 11, that my grandfather gave me all of his attention. Every little bit when I was around was was about me growing and he would get up in the afternoon and he would take me fishing and we'd sit there and we'd, we'd talk to each other and he would teach me. Um, let me just put it in context that my grandfather had a cottage, him and, and, and my grandmother Phyllis, it was on a lake and, you know, I spent my summers. Uh, at this place with my grandfather and I would run around the woods and and you know catch frogs and um, you know and you know we'd make bacon and eggs etc just these are the things we'd feed the birds we'd you know feed the chipmunks etc um, what I know now and would never know then is how much quality attention that my grandfather was giving me in in and looking for what we at camp now call teachable moments that he was with me you know with 99% of his energy to be there and take me fishing and teach me how to take a, a fish off the hook and, you know, teach me, let me stand on front of the boat. And as he was pulling in, he'd let me dive in and snorkel through the lily pads and sit there and wait for me while I did it, you know? Um, and I would guess that that for him was he felt great about watching me do the things that he did when he was a kid. And when I came into my camp experience, what I started to realize was that that how good it felt for me when he was doing that with me when I was young and now how do I pass that on to somebody else and for a long time I thought it was about time and I just recently learned that it, it's actually more about quality attention and as you practice you can actually and if you're really looking you can actually see what you're doing through the conversations they're having or conversations you have with parents later um, so that kind of yeah yeah, yeah. This might not be so applicable, but we were having this conversation recently about how for a lot of people jumping into what they want to do, that fear is the common denominator that prevents us from, sure. from diving into whatever it is. Again, it sounds like your whole trajectory, you know, you said it yourself that 
any expectations that you adhere to, you're putting them on yourself. It's up to you to decide if, if you feel like, oh, I need to get that United five or whatever. That being said, was there ever a fear before you were on Lizzie Bell or before you, did you ever have a fear of following the wrong path or like, or settling on a lifestyle that, that was going to be like, am I going to buy a house and just be trapped here and feed into this? Or am I going to see the world? Was there ever any fear that you were going to make the wrong choice and, and end up living a lifestyle that's the opposite of the lifestyle that you lived? I don't know. I can't say that there's any fear in it. Um, I would say that there's a lot of frustrating moments um, that I had to negotiate with myself and negotiate with others to get through. You know, I was just reading an article the other day about why we blame people for things and we blame people when we 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 lose control and that you know instills a fear inside you. And I think if you are, have the ability, and I think this was instilled in me, whether it was my grandfather, parents, the experiences I have, or you know anything else, Andy, Chris Belts, all these guys, I think they allowed me to see that it's okay to lose control. Um, it's how you kind of manage it and work your way through it that matters. And, um, you know, yeah, you, I think life's all about goals uh, and success isn't A to B. It's about working your way through to whatever those goals are and then they'll be successful. Um, is that kind of jumbled yeah. or is that no, no, no. answer your That's question? Good. This is an interesting one for me to ask you because I feel like, and I, think, I'm, I believe I've expressed this to you to some degree in the past. When I came to camp my second year, which is the year that we met, you had not been at camp the year before, sure. you'd taken a break. Um, I came to camp and then the first five days of being here, it's orientation. And when I came back to camp, I didn't come back with any intention of going any further, like, you know, climbing the ladder. And I also truly didn't really feel like I picked up that much the year before. I don't know if I, I think I wasn't, I wasn't conscious of what was going on at camp. I was just doing the job. I was just there doing it. I wasn't really, I wasn't self-aware at sure, the time. Sure. And, you know, in the first week or so, you you asked me to become a group leader, right? which is taking on, you know, a significant, it's a significant change from a general counsel to a group leader. Yeah. Um, a role that had not been offered to me that was based off of our interaction. And throughout the summer, that to me, that, that would have been the summer of 2012, that was one of the most important two months of my life because I felt like for the first time I had this awareness of my own growth professionally, personally. I had a very unhappy experience through university. My first year was no exception. I didn't like it. And I think that was kind of like uh, an eye-opening time for me where I thought about my position in the world. And rather than just thinking, oh, I don't like what I'm doing or I didn't enjoy the degree, thinking about, well, what is it that you do enjoy or where do you find happiness and when do you feel challenged and motivated i had never worked in a job of significance until then sure. um i feel that working at camp whether you're a general counselor or something more you're working with kids you're influencing the kids and i think that's a, an important job and working with you and having your conversations with you and philosophical conversations and right. um you pushed me to think about the role differently and to think about you know a managing children and I'm also managing counselors and I had to think about other perspectives and how people were going to respond to things and how to empower people and how to find their, their, how to help them find their strengths all the while I'm only just starting to think about this myself and at the end of it all my perspective on camp had changed in 100%. Suddenly the desire to come back while supplemented by getting to be with my friends and of course getting to be with the kids it suddenly became a lot more about your you're growing as a person here. You're taking on more responsibility. You're figuring out who you are and how you want to, whatever career I end up down or whatever path, you're, you're understanding your own inner drive. To me, that's why 
I say it at the, my, the rest of my school career, while I really didn't enjoy school, I loved camp. And it wasn't just, oh, it's fun, you're with your friends, you're with your kids. It was because I was growing every year. And that has been a major source of happiness. Camp has been my beacon of happiness whenever I'm having a rough time throughout the year. Sure. So but that, I just want you to know that that was, that opening of my eyes was, is instrumental to how I lead my life now, how I, how I search for happiness and search for what's going to push me professionally. Sure. So with all that being said, I'm curious as to, you know, what is happiness for you? Where, where, yeah. Well, again, you know, like, it's not an easy question to answer as right. you, as you guys know. Um, I guess happiness for me is moments about, yeah, pretty much of how I feel right now when I hear that, that, um, you know, through the conversations and our experiences together, that I was able to, to encourage you to, to see the world in a different way, maybe with a wider lens. Um, I'm going to answer that question by throwing it back on you and, and saying, do you feel good when you're having conversations with others and you can see the growth in them, um, through those conversations and then having experience with them. And then you're like, wow, that, that really made a difference. Now you're starting to to kind of see things in a different light. Are you seeing that with the work that you do here? Yeah, I definitely, I feel like I do see that. Uh, there's counselors who have been with us for a few years, counselors who started as JCs, who I feel like, I hope that it, me trying to maintain the philosophies that you and Steve taught me, sure. um, I hope played a role in how it affects them. And I feel, you know, kids thank me on the last day of camp and tell you like, you know, what you've done like has impacted me and that, so yes, my answer would be yes, and all that came from top down from you guys. That's a very well screwed way to go about answering a question is to throw it back and have you right. give the answer yourself. But yes, well, I think you know, and that's not a, that's not a criticism. That's just a no, no. I mean, it's uh, I always say that when I'm happiest in a job is when people pay me to think for myself, um, and not just go through those those days from operationally. Do you want to talk about anything about? The process of filming 20 feet um only i mean the process was simply hanging out with your best friend and and doing the things that you love doing and i think that's part of why it turned out so well first that i that kevin came down with a goal and brought me in on it and asked me what i thought and how to do it and then we did it together and then i was able to like go sailing and teach him the things that I've learned. And, and then through that, our conversations created this, um, you know, this bigger film, which is, I hope that, or I, I have seen the examples and I've heard the examples that is, you know, impacting others and, uh, you know, in the way that they're thinking about life. What, um, can you just talk to what it's like to, I know that you've had stints when you sailed with somebody else. What is, what has it been like to sail by yourself for weeks, for so long at a time to be totally alone in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. At times. <laughs> what is that like spiritually, mentally? Well, there's something about being by yourself. And, and I'll remember I was off of, um, right off of Antigua, there's an island beside it with an active volcano. And I'm sailing by myself, and it was a beautiful blue sky day. It was flat calm with no wind, and the engine light was going on and, you know, beeping again about something that I didn't understand fully. And, you know, I started to get frustrated. And when you're by yourself and truly by yourself, there's there's no one else to rely on or blame that things are going wrong or, you know, you can't even get upset, only that you have to focus your energy on figuring out how to fix the problem so you can keep going. And of course you're tired and, and, and you're challenged and, 
<laughs> I remember that I didn't know how to solve the problem. So um, started, I think the wind picked up and I started sailing around the island and the smoke and ashes from the volcano were actually coming onto my sails. And even though it was like such a tough situation, I was just like, look at what's happening. I would never be here. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone else has, <laughs> um, unless, you know, all this crazy shit happened. And, um, and then you just push through. You push through and... Um, to be honest, when I was sailing alone, that it gets to a point that you that I was feeling like I wasn't having a purpose, that I wasn't passing anything on to anyone else. I wasn't. Um, I was realizing that it is important to have somebody else to um, uh, to work as a team and get different perspectives and to challenge me in the ways I was thinking, which is part of the reason I came back to camp. Was feeling you know sailing around the Caribbean is great, except are you having an impact on society or what are you adding? You know, uh, well, so is it, it's, it sounds like it's fair to say that back to the happiness question that a lot of it for you is interaction with other people and, and community and giving the give and take with other people, whether that's passing on a skill or just working as a team and human interaction. I think so. I think what I really enjoy practicing and Chris Belts, who just came in as a proof example, like everything that a lot of what you're talking about that I'm handing things off to you at the very beginning, he spent hours and hours, you know, uh, days and weeks, you know, coming and visiting me and having conversations. And because we trust each other and we have a strong relationship, I was able to understand that and then practice it myself. And then that feels good. And I would imagine it makes him feel good. And, I, and you know, to use you as an example, I think you feel good. Um, so... I don't know, what is ha happiness? Maybe the same thing my grandfather was doing when he was sitting on that boat watching me snorkel around uh, these lily pads and he was handing something off to somebody else. Um, so for the last few years, Lizzie Bell and living on the ship has been like the largest part of your life. Sure. But from what Denzel's told me, it sounds like you just recently closed that chapter of your life. Though. Is that correct? Yeah, so um, a lot of... There's a lot of like in the background stuff that was happening and the reasons um, and what actually happened was uh, with my father we took on a larger project which was a larger uh, sailboat and the name was Sorka is a schooner a lot of tradition uh, in Nova Scotia surrounding the schooner and to take on challenges like that we had to that large and it was a significant challenge by the way once again I had no idea what I was getting into to do that, we had to find someone else who would put the same care and love into Lizzie Bell and the legacy that she's left behind. And through multiple conversations and, you know, beers at the bar, et cetera, et cetera, my dad and I came up with a local guy who's 23 years old. Um, you could see that he has drive, um, high aspirations, um, larger vision beyond himself. He's charismatic, you know, has, has the right aura. And um, his girlfriend as well is, um, you know, personable and um, highly driven, um, motivated, you know, from, from the heart. And we were, you know, we sat down with him one day and said, are you guys interested in taking over this project and carrying it with you? And of course they were, you know, they felt, first of all, honored. You know, they watched the whole story and as it developed and they lived in the hometown. And, you know, we talk about handing things off to other people. That day, they gave me a loony, and I handed over the papers, and they, uh, they're completing the next chapter of Lizzie Bell's uh, legacy, which is, to me, I couldn't ask for two better people, because they've done it for the last three years to, you know, the highest standard, so. Damn. Yeah, that's really, that's quite the story. Yeah. Where are they right now? So, they spent 
one winter sailing around Mexico and Belize and getting to know, you know, after speaking with me, getting to know some of the things I was talking about, hey, you got to throw paint on the wall. You got to get in there and, you know, just start practicing and seeing what the painting is going to look like. You got to anchor and then have it on anchor in the middle of the night so you get up and fix those problems. You got to hit a reef. You got to, you know, you got to put the sails up and get in the storm. You have to get uncomfortable to be comfortable. And they did that. And then they, the next winter, they took on a huge challenge to sail from Mexico all up went to Florida, to Key West, and they stationed her there because like us all, we ran out of, they ran out of money, they come home and work for the summer, uh, and now I th what I understand, they're gonna come back, get her, and bring her home to Mahone Bay, and uh, you know, Nova Scotia, where I'm from, and live on her, you know, bring the, the story back to a full circle. Wow. Yeah, so uh, pretty interesting stuff to watch and be part of. In the next, let's say the next five to 10 years, sure. where do you see yourself? So now you're, you're looking back home, right? Right. You work for camp. Yep. I know you do, you do the photography and then you still work for camp from afar in the off season. Sure. What's the, what do you see as the next chapter? Um, it's pretty, pretty clear at the moment. Um, what you guys wouldn't have known and what I, what I didn't touch on and I should have was that for the last 14 years, there's always been, um, you know, one significant lady in the background who was my high school sweetheart um and we we actually she was part of driving out to whistler um she sailed on lizzie bell you know she has been in and out of my life and very patient with me on these um these adventures that i've i've taken on and we've recently decided to get back together and she's pregnant and is having a baby boy who will be born on december 26th and um once again, I mean, we talk about happiness and giving back and handing things off. I think that um, now my role is to, as I see my, I see other people who have influenced me. When we talk about, you know, you, you Denzel, we talk about Chris Belts and my parents. Um, I don't think there's anything more interesting than actually, you know, I see, like I said, I see them in me and the impact they've had. And now I get to hand all that stuff off to somebody else who I can look in their eyes and see myself, which is... Which is pretty neat. Wow. Yeah. What a bombshell. What a twist. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Thank, Congratulations. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Um, so my focus will be there and of course maintaining my uh, my career at camp and uh, continue to, to do the things that we just talked about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty poignant. Yeah. Interesting stuff, you know. All right. Well, Greg, if you don't have anything else, I just want to say thank you, Dave, for doing it. Oh, thank yeah. you for passing on what you could to me. You've always been a mentor to me. And as I said before, kind of opened my eyes and developed a sense of self-awareness and a sense of, I started to understand a sense of purpose within myself. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. You just gave me a sense of purpose by saying it. So, um, and, and know that, that others have done the same thing for me and uh, you know who they are. So uh, we have to be thankful for the community that we're living in. Anything else for me? No, I think that about covers it. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, good luck on this uh, this project and venture, and I'm looking forward to you know hearing how it's changing and, and you guys are adapting, and um, looking forward to kind of talking to you guys at the end and seeing um, what the final painting is looking like. <laughs> yeah, paint at the wall. And I appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you too, brother. Thanks, man. Great. Thank you. No problem. And that was Dave Wellsford. Such a palpable kind of tranquility about him. It just seems like he carries an inner peace uh, and, a, and a comfort in knowing that what he does makes him happy. And, and a great story about the importance of community 
and family and human interaction. And that's something that comes up a lot with, with the guests that we've spoken to uh, in terms of what makes, you know, what makes them happy. And I, I think never so much so is with, is with Dave here, who, who's very conscious and intentional about what he passes on to others and very aware about what he receives from other people. Great chat and so glad to have him stop by. And again, I highly, highly recommend that you check out Dave and Lizzie Bell's short documentary. It's called 28 Feet Life on a Little Wooden Boat. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Vimeo. It's eight and a half minutes, I believe. Really inspiring and beautifully shot. And before I forget, Dave's son has arrived. Born December 14th, I believe. Oscar Richard Wellsford. That's a sick name, by the way. So it all comes full circle. Congratulations, Dave and Natasha. That kid's probably going to have a pretty dope, dope life full of adventure and uh, community, of course. Um, that's it for the episode. Like I said at the top of the show, it's January 1st. Uh, this was obviously a holdover from 2017. But now that we're in the new year, uh, I'm coming back with a vengeance, man. Um, I'm gonna, I got some ideas in the works, some people that I really want to speak to. And I've got an interesting journey um, in the works for myself right now. Some plans that I'm not going to talk about just yet. But uh, on the next episode, you can, you can be sure I will dive into a little bit more. Uh, so as always, thank you to everybody who's listening. Really appreciate it. Please send emails to 25percentlife 25 percentlife at gmail.com if you have any questions, you know, anything at all, any feedback, criticism, would love that. Yeah, man, that's it. I'm I'm a little tired, man. I'm I'm I, it was a long a long night last night working. And I'm coming into the new year a little groggy, but but I'm ready. I'm ready and I'm looking forward to it. And good luck to everybody out there with your New Year's resolutions. Uh, yeah. Till the next one. This is Quarter Life. The clock is ticking.